Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. As she came back into the bedroom, um, I passed him across to her, and as soon as he rested in her arms, he took his last breath. And it was unquestionable in my mind that he waited for her to die. In the months and years following a loss, the experience of a bereavement often affords a person a new outlook or approach to life. Um, this week's guest, Justin Caffrey, experienced this firsthand after the premature birth of his baby son, Joshua, just 25 weeks into pregnancy. And that, of course, changed his family's life forever. Justin, first of all, thank you for, very much for joining us today. Your baby's death, Joshua. Can you bring us back to the beginning? Sure. Um, and thank you for inviting me. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. So yes, Joshua's, Joshua's death was, was certainly unexpected, which of course I think is, is always the case for any of us when we lose somebody. Um, but we, we happened to, to be on, um, on a family holiday. Um, my wife was six months pregnant um, and Joshua was to be our second child. We'd already gone through um, three miscarriages leading up to, to the pregnancy with Joshua. And we, we actually, had, just before we found out she was pregnant for the fourth time, we'd, we'd actually ruled out the whole idea of even trying again because we started to feel that the stress was too much um, on my wife and the pressure and you know it was impacting her health as well. And then miraculously, um, he came along. So we went to Spain just for, for a week to take a little holiday before the, the second child. And whilst we were in Spain, um, I think maybe three days into into our to our um, vacation, um, Beatrice woke me up at three or four o'clock in the morning to tell me that our waters had broken, um, and we were at this stage about two hundred and sixty or two hundred and eighty kilometers from the nearest hospital, which we only found after a few hours where it was because we didn't know where anything was at that stage. We're, we're on vacation, so you don't really think about these kind of things. And it was funny because it, it followed the night before where we'd actually sat down and had a conversation about, you know, how great everything is in our life at that moment. So it, it, it also taught us a lesson to not be too complacent because everything can change um, in a moment as we discovered that day. So we had a, we had a mad dash to try and find a hospital. Um, which we did, and um, we got to um, a maternity hospital in Malaga, and they checked Beatrice and said that um, they thought it was possible they could um, prolong the pregnancy, which was which was critical because she was twenty five weeks pregnant at that stage. But they said, you know, we weren't going anywhere, we couldn't fly anywhere, we couldn't travel, we needed to stay exactly where we were, 
um, and we'd have to stay in the hospital and she'd have to stay in the hospital. So we had a, a three-year-old with us and um, we obviously had a life that was still going on back in the UK. We lived in, yeah. in England age. Um, so we were stuck and, and that's, that's how, that's how life stopped really for us at that moment. And, and, and then Joshua lived for 11 months, but it was within the turmoil of, of everything that happened from that point on really. First of all, I can't even begin to fathom being in that situation when you're, you have no support, you have no family members around, you have no friends around, you have no one to help look after your older child. Um, it must have been so isolating. How did you guys as a family kind of, you must have just had to come together and live in the moment and support each other as, as a little unit. Is that is that kind of how it happened for you guys? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that that really is it. You know, you... Um, I think human beings have an incredible capacity to deal with a crisis. You know, people will always look or listen to my story and think, I don't know how it would cope with it. But I think you don't have a lot of options, you know, especially when you're dealing with, when you're dealing with another child um, mm. who is three. Um, and they've um, no idea what's going on. No idea. So, you mm. know, for him, this is kind of like, what, where, where is the world gone? <laughs> Yeah, where's um, the swimming pool? Where's the beach? Absolutely. So we, you know, we, we just had to try and find a capacity to deal with it. Um, and I, I always remember after we'd gotten Beatrice into hospital, and then we were there for the whole day, and doctors had seen her, etc. And then I had to try and find somewhere to stay that night with my son in Malaga. And of course, I had no idea anything about the city or anything else. Mm. And eventually, found this at this hotel. I remember trying to check into a hotel at 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock at night with a three-year-old sitting on the counter crying because he is really upset um, and, and confused. Um, I'm, I'm having to have an argument with the people in the hotel who are telling me that I don't have a reservation and I can't check in. And that was like, I thought, oh, this is just, you know, the absolute pits. In reality, that was the, the first time of extreme tension um, and and we never made it out of Spain for another eleven months. So yeah. <laughs> Can I ask you about that extreme tension? Because I think a lot of people who go through grief and loss, a lot of times there's years and months or weeks leading up to the loss of the person they love that are exceptionally stressful. And it sounds like your circumstances that was the case. Obviously, you had some time to maybe get used to your God. I hate to say it, new normal, but you know you got used to yeah. the the world you were living in. But I don't know for you, did you feel, um, you know, the, the book, The Body Keeps Score, like yeah. that this kind of level of stress or trauma stays with you. Do you feel like, that's a hard question to ask, I'm not really sure how to phrase it, but that that kind of stress that you probably, I don't know if you had experienced in, previously in your life where you're trying to get your family together and figure out things on the spot and it's such high stakes because it's the people you love. Has that stayed with you in your in your mind and body? Has that been something you've had to work on? Yeah, I mean, definitely something that I that I had to work on. I think I was I was lucky in a in a weird way that that I was used to high levels of stress. Um, you know, I I was I've been running um, quite large businesses um, for my own for for myself in the UK for many years um, since I was very young. So I've been dealing with high levels of stress since I was 19. Um, and sadly, I also went through the process of losing my, my nephew um, to meningitis back in, in 2001. 
Um, and that had a very traumatic impact on me too. And, and it created this immense fear in me that I would lose a child. Um, and now I was, you know, in that moment, the thing that I feared was now sitting, you know, right in front of me. Um, so that was, that was very jarring emotionally. Um, but in, but in the, in the times that, that followed, um, and, and especially after Joshua's death, um, where I where I went on to, to struggle with post traumatic stress, mm. um, you know, reliving that period was important, and seeing that stress, and also being able to forgive yourself because we kind of beat ourselves up for how we behave around extreme situations like bereavement, like why didn't I do this or say mm. this or whatever. But you know, you're you're being a human being in the moment, and you're trying your best. Um, so in hindsight, I think there's a huge amount of forgiveness around bereavement um, for our own perceived behaviors. You know, I blame myself for Joshua's death in, in the years that followed, and it was mm. nonsensical, but it's... But that's it, it quite a normal reaction to have. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's important for people to realize that, but I, I think a lot of people with bereavement issues... Um, hold on to that because they're embarrassed to speak about it because they think, well, if I speak about it, then maybe I am guilty. Maybe it is my fault, but it's important for people to realize that it's, it's, it's just a natural way of behaving. And, and the more we try and then hide or push away from that, the, the more it kind of is shaking like a volcano ready to erupt. Can I ask you about your older son? Because you're on holidays, which is supposed to be a happy time for families and then all this changed and you were there for 11 months. How did you explain what was happening to him or how did he adjust? How did you help him deal with what was going on? Just in the most honest and, and open way that we could. Um, you know, it's funny, life, life gives you experiences that you, can, that you can either ignore or learn from. And when I was a kid, my, my father suffered really badly with um, uh, clinical depression and anxiety and was hospitalized on multiple occasions um, in, in a mental institute. And my, my mother didn't even tell me where he was. And my family didn't want to tell everybody else where he was. So, you know, I, I remember being that child desperately confused and trying to orientate myself in the world. So when we, when we get into that situation, it was just, look, we just got to tell it as it is. And, and, you know, he was, he was three when we arrived. He, we, this was, this was um, January. And he turned four at the end of April. Um, so, you know, we were just honest about the fact that, you know, his brother was was born. He shouldn't have been born yet. He's he's not very well. Um, we also had to have the difficult conversation to say that it really is down to the doctors as to whether or not they will be able to make him better. Mm. But every day that he's alive, we can be thankful that he's here. Um so, I mean, for, for years afterwards, Luca always thought that every child is born, they spend months in hospital. Um, yeah. So his perception, of course, was, was different. But Joshua was in two different hospitals. He just referred to them as, as the doctor's house. So he always just said, oh, yeah, baby Joshua was in the doctor's house. Um, and he could never see Joshua when he was in neonatal intensive care. So the first time he got to meet Joshua was um, five months after he was born. Um, and, and it's, it's, it's a hugely impactful thing on Luca's life. You know, we couldn't have any more children after Joshua and, um, he is very emotionally connected to loss. Um, and now as a, as a, a 13 year old kid, he's, he's very sensitive in the context of understanding his emotions. 
Um, you know, Joshua's ashes are in the house. Here we have photographs of them all around the house. So we're all deeply connected to him and speak about him, and that helps him, I think. That's so wonderful. I um, I think that that you intuitively knew like so that you got like kind of let yourself guide that and and uh, and know that that was the right thing. I recently spoke to a therapist, at, not in a professional setting, uh, just a casual conversation at the playground, um, and she was telling me that a lot of times with children that she works with, when they start talking to the kids, they realize that the problem is that they, the parents didn't tell them about something that had happened that was significant in their family. So I think the openness, although it, it's a lot, it takes a lot of bravery to be that open and to kind of maybe um, trust that they'll be able to handle this in some way, it, it obviously stands to them maybe long-term. 11 months is, is a short and a long time, but you, you would have gotten to know Joshua. Can you tell us about who he was? What was he like? I think just to, just to finish one point on the impact on my other son, I think it's important yeah. as well for for children who are going through um, bereavement issues, whether it's whether it's um, you know one of their own parents or siblings or, or close family. What we've done in the years subsequent is Luca has has been with a therapist. Um, I think three times over the last ten years. So we just do a check-in, um, and there's some fantastic um, child therapists um, where where they'll just you know see how he is, and then talk to us. So so you know I think it's an important thing to realize that often for adults we can go through therapy. Children, their brain is evolving so much; it's worth checking in. So so he's he's been great. Um, uh, so Joshua was um, well. He was he was born um, weighing uh, nine hundred grams. Um, so uh, you know he was so unbelievably tiny. And it was mm. funny. I found some video of him the other day in, the, in an incubator, which I, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna post it on on my social media because there's so many photographs of him. But actually, us interacting with him and just you know holding his holding his his hand, and you just see this tiny little body and the skin is just so fragile on the bones he arrived after Beatrice started bleeding day four in the hospital and there was then an emergency cesarean section he had um, hypoxic brain injury during that cesarean um, so there was there was mistakes made in the Malaga hospital which which caused problems in the context of of his of his struggle to, to, to breathe. Um, and then when they, when they did remove him during the, um, cesarean, um, they gave him 24 hours to live, um, because they said, you know, they, they think it was too traumatic. Um, and then he lived 48 hours and then he lived three days and then he lived a week. And then they started to talk to us about, you know, maybe there is a pathway here to recovery. Um, so he was in the incubator for five months and to be born at to be born at 28 weeks is is touch and go. Um, nowadays, technology is better because they cool the brain. Um, they didn't do that in Malaga at the time. So we we did a lot of kangaroo care, um, where you where you take the baby and you and you put them on your chest. Um, and the way we operated for the next five months was one of us would be with Luca and one of us would be with Joshua, um, and we'd take turns. So. A lot of being with him, a lot of singing to him, a lot of having skin contact when we could. You know, neonatal intensive care for five months can be a hugely traumatic and debilitating thing for a child, even if they recover from everything else. Mm. He struggled. Uh, he had a collapsed lung during that time. Um, he had to have a complete blood transfusion at one stage. Um, 
he had pneumonia, he had um, bronchitis, and and he was intubated three times during five months. And and the intubation of of a of a small baby is 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 a very unpleasant thing to see. Um, and whatever progress they have made until the point they're intubated, everything is then just gone, and you're back to zero again. So we knew he had quite likely was going to have um, cerebral palsy. Um, but we were making little improvements and then it would go back, back, back. So he, he couldn't eat properly. Um, he was tube fed. Um, he was obviously fully oxygen dependent and moving between, you know, um, um, a CPAP where, where it's, where it's positive oxygen being pushed in or where they would have to then intubate him where it's, where it's onto full life support. So, so that was five months where were pretty extreme. Um, and then after that, he started to recover a bit, and that's when we were then trained to to be his carers for a while. You're in a foreign country. Were there language barriers? There must have been times when it was extremely frustrating for all of you. Yeah, I mean, language barriers were extraordinary. You know, this was this was Malaga in 2010. Spain, unlike a lot of other European countries, didn't have a huge amount of English speaking. Um, within schools in the kind of 80s and 90s. So the physicians that we were dealing with who were, you know, in their 30s in 2010, most of them didn't speak English at all. We were very lucky that there was a Canadian nurse who was in the hospital. But, you know, we would just have sporadic days where we would find her. They didn't have any protocols to help, you know, English parents who who accidentally gave birth to a child in Spain. It wasn't something that that, that, that they really had to deal with. So language was extremely difficult. My wife, who's who's German and fluent in English and and, and French, um, she really focused on her Spanish. Um, we got a, we got some really good um, Spanish teachers. My Spanish was appalling, but um, her Spanish improved so much. Um, I mean, so much to the point that you know, by month eight and nine, she was sitting having conversations with the neurology team about wow. you know, the notes of his brain injury. Whereas I could probably at best order them a coffee with milk. Um, but she was phenomenal. And that really did save our bacon. Um, but it was, even for her though, if she was, if she was sitting here now when she would talk about being in her, in her most fluent in Spanish, it was still really hard because... But it's it terminology and everything as well. Mm. Yeah. In terms of like a place, a place can have such a huge, uh, anytime, you know, where the place you lost the person, the place the trauma took, you know, where it happened even just thinking about it. I have that a lot with, um, I think a lot about like tur- the turns on certain roads mm. and, and it's a strange thing, but have you been like, what's your relationship with Malaga now? Have you ever been back? You know, is there a desire to be there or the opposite? Do you never, we never want to be there? No, um, my relationship is really, really positive. Um, so we've been back several times. Um, we actually ended up buying, um, uh, a house not too far away from from Malaga. Um, we, we came very close to Spain during those eleven months, and you know we actually we we always thought Joshua was going to get out of Spain, so we thought he was coming back with us. He just never mm. made it. So we we felt very close to it, and and in, in our time in Malaga, we lived in five houses. The last house that we lived in was the house that he actually died in because we we were eventually able to take him into our care so he could die in a non medicated environment. So. He died in this house, and I remember we went back to that house maybe five years ago. And I always had this sense of wanting to go back to the house, and and you know obviously 
we, we, we didn't go into the house, but we drove up to the house and we, we sat in the car and, and I just closed my eyes and I just wanted to kind of feel a connection to his spirit. And I just wanted to say, you know, like we're here, whatever's left within you that was, that was here at this house, mm. just wanted to feel that connection and just get this sense of kind of bringing the last bits of him back with us to, to Ireland. Um, so that was a really beautiful moment. Um, and then we, we went into the hospital and we had lunch in the hospital, like in this horrible canteen um, that was our home for, for you know, months. Mm. We went back and we, and we sat in there and, and we smiled and just thought about, you know, the good times. Um, so I, I, think, I think in many ways it's that fear of, of going back to these things. But when you go inside them, but not as bad as you as you remember them to be, and I think that journey was an important one for us at the time to to, to get more comfortable with the whole situation. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance, United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I remember sending my friend a picture. I had gone back to the canteen and I sent her a picture and she said, Why are you there? Oh, she was. <laughs> horrified that I would go back there. She couldn't understand it at all. But I just sat there, just like you said, I sat down and I had some lunch and I had a coffee and I felt quite, it, it, there was a sense of comfort in mm. sense, like I was connected to that place, um, which is, you know, so it's, it's, it's interesting to hear that people kind of relate to it very, you know, very differently in terms of place. Um, when I was reading your story, Justin, I have to say when, when you talked about losing Joshua the night that you lost him as a parent, I, I had to actually kind of, I had to keep coming back to read it. I couldn't read it in one, in one sitting because it was just a very, very, very beautiful way that you talked about um, the moment and how you guys, can you talk a little bit about um, as a parent, what that is like and, and how, I don't know, I guess it's hard to ask the question, but. Um, no, don't worry. I, I, I get it. I get it. I think. Up until Christmas um, of, of, of that year in Spain, um, we'd started to plan to, to come back to Ireland. So although we lived in England, um, we realized that we needed support um, because we, we knew that like, irrespective of Joshua's outcome, he, he was going to need help and support for, for most of his life. And we'd, we'd been in contact with um, Jonathan Irwin at Jack and Jill, who, who I 
to know. Um, and and I'd supported Jonathan on a couple of things before. And it was really weird to phone up Jonathan and tell him, you know, I now have a jack um, and I need your help. So we'd, we'd started the preparation work and we were, we'd were we already started to work the air ambulance because it was only at this point in 11 months where, where they felt he could be lifted and could endure that kind of journey back in a plane on an air ambulance. And then it all went wrong. So it was, it was um, Christmas Day. Um, sorry, Christmas Eve. We, um, we, we couldn't sustain him at home. So we we trained us as carers and they said, provided we lived within two kilometers of the hospital, we could work with him at home. So he was still tube fed, oxygen dependent. We had to vacuum out his, his, his lungs and his breathing um, systems every day, multiple times. But we could be together as a family and the doctors would call every second day and they'd always be available if needed. And, and the whole thing was then to try and start rehabilitation for him. But many times during having him home in our care, um, he would relapse. We couldn't sustain him with oxygen at home. We'd have to bring him back to the hospital. And, and this particular um, Christmas Eve issue, um, we brought him there. Um, it was late into the evening. We got to hospital. They immediately um, said that he needed to intubate him again. So put him back on full life support which was really hard to hear because we'd been working really hard in rehab. And once they do that, they pump them full of drugs. Um, you know, literally it's like watching a baby being blown up like a balloon with the, with the amount of medication they put in. And they said, look, there's nothing you can do now. You know, he's out cold. You guys need to just go home now, get some rest. It was late. So we drove home and the next morning was Christmas morning. So we got up and we have some beautiful video of, of organizing a really nice Christmas morning for Luca. Um, and um, we, you know, we did the footprints of Santa and all those kind of things. And we said, look, whatever happens from this point, we want to keep Christmas Day sacred. Mm. Um, and then we got a call in the afternoon to come to the hospital. They said, you need to come now. It's really important. So we came um, and, and by the time we got there, which was kind of, 20 minutes, half an hour later, um, they said, oh, he turned a corner. They thought he was he was going to die and they couldn't hold him. But now they've got him back. Um, but they said to us that, look, you know, if your normal medical team had been here because it's not Christmas, um, then they wouldn't have intubated anymore. And, and they said, look, we know your story. We know about you guys being stuck here, but it's now time to let go. And as a hospital, we can't do this anymore. So, you know, now you need to, to plan for palliative care. So we, we had to fight a one last big fight, a legal battle to have him released into our care, to die at home. We didn't want him to die in hospital. And we needed to be able to apply morphine to him because he was eventually going to die of asphyxiation because it was his breathing that was a problem. Um, so we needed him to die pain-free um, and peacefully. So bringing him home and having him at home um, was really nice. And we had, we had three weeks together. Um, and... In the, in the night before his, his death, um, he had multiple um, cardiac arrests. And we kept thinking he's, he's going to die. This, this is it. And he'd come back to life again. And I mean, that was, that was just a bizarre experience because you're, you're, you're upset and then you're, you're kind of slightly elated, but you know what the end is coming. Um, but we got to take him into bed with us that last night um, after he recovered from multiple heart attacks. And he slept in between us and we, we had a beautiful night and morning together. Um, and then the next day we knew that we needed um, Luca to be taken outside because we knew Joshua was going to die and we didn't want him to witness that, that finality, not at four years of age. 
my parents had come over from Ireland. So they took Luca down to the beach and, and um, I had Joshua in the bedroom and Beatrice had been organizing Luca. And then as she came back into the bedroom, um, I passed him across to her. And as soon as he rested in her arms, he took his last breath. And it was, it was really, it's always really nice for us because it was unquestionable in my mind that he waited for her to die. Um, and it was a very peaceful end to a very traumatic year. And then, you know, what happened then afterwards was I saw Beatrice just move into this primal state where she started to prepare his body. And he always had tape on his face because he had um, oxygen masks and, and tubes going in to, to feed him. So she just started to clean his body and, and clean him down. And, and it was, it was a, I know this is a very strange thing to say, but it was just the most natural experience you could possibly have. And I think we don't have that experience because people die away from us in homes or hospitals or yeah. these kind of places. But there's a, there's, there's a primal instinct within us when it comes to death that we often try and run away from. Do you think that, like you were saying, as her mom, like a, that women like the birth part of it and then the death part of it that like there's some part of you that that knows what to do i mean i think that's what you're saying like you know like the way that having a baby like she she knew what to do even though she had no like reason to know but she did to this day i don't think i'll see anything more incredible until the day that i die because i didn't i didn't have that i didn't have that intuition that sense of what to do next um and so I then I had to go and, and let my parents know and, and find and find Luca. And then I also had to organize um, funeral home to come. So I was out mm. of the house um, for 20 minutes, half an hour. And then I came back to the house again. And I just, she had this aura about her and this way of being that was just primal. And I, I said, primal always sounds like kind of mm. like, area aggressive i mean in this beautiful serene way of being with that that child and i think it's definitely it was a, it was a maternal instinct and, and just like of course you know if there's no doctors around women still give birth i think we you know we, we've over medicated our, our view on many things and um and yeah it was a beautiful end to joshua's life and he died very peacefully and it was a really nice experience for us um was obviously horrendous to lose mm. your son but you also then come to terms which which everybody fortunately has to when it comes to terminal illness that that their life that they're living is no longer sustainable so you you have to kind of let go as parents you want to strive and and and, and do whatever you can to mm. keep them alive. eventually you have to let them yeah it's a hard decision yeah yeah absolutely i mean i, I we tortured over the whole idea for for days um but um you know i don't you know we, we don't have any alternative I mean, we know we know from speaking to friends of ours in the uk who who are physicians that that the nhs would not have intubated and and brought joshua back to life as many times as the spanish medical system mm. did um so it's it's country dependent so we got 11 months because we were there um i mean somebody once said to me that it would be highly unlikely if they would have even um, resuscitated him after he was born in a UK facility because he was such challenged um, in the context of, of a brain injury and hypoxia and everything else. So, 
you learn to be grateful about so many, so many things. And it's the only way to truly appreciate that loss is to find gratitude. Yeah. So while it, it wasn't ideal being in Spain by any stretch of the imagination, maybe it was meant to be because you got that extra time. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and you know, he, he, he was Joshua Raphael Caffrey. So we gave him a Spanish name. I mean, <laughs> you know, it just felt right. I was going to say death can change a person, but I'm going to change that. It just does. There's, I don't think there's any situation where it doesn't. I think grief, it changes forever. Um, and oftentimes, this is a, this is a really difficult sense, sort of sensitive area to talk about, but oftentimes there are, there are things that change you for the better. And there are things that, that you evolve into onto another plane a little bit. You're kind of in a different space in your mind and your heart and your empathy. You evolve into a whole other person um, in a lot of ways. And you learn a lot about humanity and about yourself and about, relationships um i know that that's something that you've that's happened for you where you've taken the experience and it has changed you forever can you talk a little bit about about that it's a hard one because i know for so many people they especially in the early stages can only see it as this thing that will will be a terrible terrible change for them that will have no element of evolution to it does that make sense yes absolutely i think grief i always think consumes you right but once you're once you're being consumed, it's very difficult to to see that there's going to be any light at the end of this tunnel. Um, and and I, you know, when when we talk about the death of a child, you know, first of all, it's 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 a taboo subject in, mm. in especially in older generations to even talk about the whole idea of of the death of a child. Um, but I think it's an important thing to discuss because it it shows that everything is recoverable. Like no matter how horrendous it is, we can still get past it. We can still move on with our lives, albeit, you know, we're different. And as you rightly say, everybody changes on the back of it. After Joshua died, we decided to still come and live in Ireland because we thought, well, you know, let's not just go back to, to our normal life in the UK and the rat race, which, you know, no offense to, to people from the UK and mm. a lot of my friends and clients are still there, but it's a different lifestyle compared to living in Ireland. So we, we, we still had Luca now who was, who was, you know, um, four going on five. Um, and we thought it would be good to, to take some time, have some family support, um, and to, and to be in Ireland. And I, and I had, I had lived away from Ireland since I was 19. So I hadn't really been around my family that much. So I was kind of looking forward to that as well. So we came back and, and Beatrice, spent you know many months after we arrived back walking in in the mountains in Wicklow where we lived um with with a golden retriever dog that we that we um we got at that stage Sanchez keeping the the um, <laughs> Spanish team and he's he's still with us now and she really came to terms with so much about herself and that whole period of time um I decided to set up a new business um in a different country with clients all over the world and, and live on an airplane for the next two years. And you know, I was taking like 150, 170 flights a year, never really connecting into my grief, never really going into the dark recesses of my mind that I needed to, to sit with. And it was on those flights that I would always have five minutes at the start of the flight and five minutes at the end where you're not allowed to put your headphones on, you're not allowed to do anything except just wait while you take off and land. 
And they were the moments when I would have flashbacks about the trauma and when I would feel my chest and, and I kept ignoring it and putting it away. And, and it, you know, it, it, it slowly moved into the point that I knew I needed to have a drink on a plane as soon as I could, because after takeoff, I knew that was going to be coming into my mind. So I spent three years kind of pushing it away, suppressing it and building a business which eventually ended up in, in, a, in a panic attack. And I thought I was having a heart attack or a stroke. I had no idea what was going on. I mean, it's, it's so incredible how, how far removed we can come from grief that we don't even notice. Of course, this is why I'm not feeling well, because my son died two and a half years ago. Like, and I've never dealt with it, but I didn't see it that way. And that was the, that was the, the, the real wake-up call when I realized that I needed to get some help but you know, another couple of weeks passed from there, and and then I started to be drawn into suicidal ideation, where I really felt like I wanted to end my own life, and I couldn't really articulate why. Um, but it wasn't it wasn't Joshua's death that was really the biggest problem for me. I think grief in an extreme can often be the straw that breaks the camel's back. You know, in many times, we all have stresses and traumas and everything else that we're carrying with us through life. And then there's a massive moment in grief and everything gets shaken up. Um, so I needed to deal with a lot of past trauma, a lot of past issue. Um, and luckily I went into therapy, um, but, but it was, I, I went into therapy the day after I decided that suicide was the answer. Um, and I'm so unbelievably thankful that I did. And I changed my life because God only knows what I would have left behind with my wife and son if I had to take my own life. Um, but in, in, the, in the darkness of, of extreme mental illness, suicide unfortunately starts to look like a, like a very viable option. Do you think that for, for men, I think um, you're, what you're telling me, this story that what you went through is, is not uncommon for men to bury their grief, for a lot of them to never get to the point that you, that you have gotten to where they recognize, yes, this is what I'm going through and this is causing this pain. And, you know, I think it's interesting that you talk about like media and distraction because a lot of men that I have known in my life use, whether it be podcasts or video or music, there's always something on. And a lot of men I speak to need something to fall asleep. Oh, I have to watch this to fall asleep. I have to listen to this to fall asleep. It was like, oh God, we've moved past the ability to fall asleep without something to... So that your mind, just like you said, your mind doesn't go to the place even for five minutes. Yeah. You know, you're talking about that moment where you decided that you needed to go to therapy. Did you get there yourself or were there, was there someone in your life that said, this has to happen now. You have to take care of yourself and move to that next phase. Yeah. I mean, when I had the panic attack and stuff, I ignored that. Um, and I was actually closing a deal in my office at the time. So I, I completely ignored that for, and that went on for about 40 minutes. Um, and I went back to my hotel because my office at this stage was was in was in Malta and London, and um, so I was always living in hotels. I went back to my hotel and just and just drank some alcohol, which is which is quite often you know the solution mm. for for people with, with with stress. But I came back that weekend, and Beatrice, my wife, said to me, um, she said, you know, have you noticed that you've stopped petting our dogs? Um, and I found that as really quite a shocking revelation. And I realized that I had. And the more stressed you get, the more anxious you get, the more depressed you get, the narrower the focus is on your life. So you really only have the 
capacity to do certain things. And every week I had to take a flight. I had to travel for eight hours to go to an office or to go to a client. I could be going to Sydney or New York or London or wherever. So I was really narrowing the amount of energy I had. So I'd stop giving to my dogs. Now I still, you know, talking to my wife and my son, mm. but that was, that was the moment where I thought, wow, this is, this is different. And then we spoke about, um, therapy. Um, I also, um, spent time with one of my best pals who's an executive coach and we had a really good chat and then I needed to find a therapist and I wanted to find somebody who was not going to take me down the Medicaid route because my father had, had been that way for many years and he had electric shock treatment and all of that so I really wanted to find an alternative path and there was something there was something within me that I didn't quite understand but I knew I needed a different path um, and I found my therapist who, who eventually also became my teacher Dr. Pradeep Chada, who changed my life. Um, and and we, we had our, actually, the day I, I really started to plan my suicide, I'd already spoken to him once. And it was a Sunday morning and, and I was sitting in the, in the kitchen. You know, we had, we had everything that people would want. You know, we had the money and, and no stresses and the cars and all that kind of rubbish that, that we believe is, is, the, is, the, is the key to life. But I didn't have myself. I didn't have my own soul. I'd lost connection with that. And um, I was just planning my suicide and I texted my um, therapist and I said to him, this is happening. And he said, oh, he said, okay. He said, do me a favor. Just don't do anything between now and tomorrow morning. You will now have an appointment tomorrow morning at eight o'clock and just be in my office. And it's so weird that that connection. But I went, oh, okay. <laughs> I'll be there tomorrow morning. And, and we, we then went um, deep into therapy for the next three months. And when I sat with him that next day, he said, look, if you do everything I tell you, your life will change and it'll be completely different. Um, and I did, and, and it did. Um, and, and as we finished therapy, I said to him, look, I'm really amazed at what, what we've been through and I would love you to teach me now what you know. Um, and then I became his student and eventually turned up at a board of investment management and, and hedge fund business and, and told my my board and then and then my shareholders in the investment business that I'm leaving and I'm selling and I'm and I'm quitting financial services and they were all like what what are you going to do and I was like I really got into um Buddhist psychology and therapy and that's what I'm going to do for the rest of my life <laughs> so that was a really <laughs> weird place that's, to end up <laughs> that's incredible it is sort of quite you hear from you the positivity and what's come out of a dreadful situation. Do you ever look and think how your life might be different had it not turned out this way? Yeah, I mean, great question. Um, um, quite a lot. I think, I think I would have had some kind of breakdown anyway. You know, I think I've been living my life in an extreme way since I was 19 years of age. You know, I left Ireland to, to go to London. Um, I had an incredibly successful career at a very, very young age. I was making an awful lot of money and had huge amounts of responsibility and pressure. Um, I was definitely a workaholic, you know, so I was I was not um, I wasn't partying hard. I was I was working hard. So I think it would have derailed. Um, I look back and I think Joshua came to save me and that's how I always feel about him. You know, I think he saved me and he also made me a better father, um, and a better husband. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm so grateful and so thankful for, for that experience. And, and like even, um, 
so it, it also changed the way that I, I, I lived. So, you know, once I could get out of the company and, and be at home and not travel as much as I did, it was just a game changer for me. Um, but it's funny, like last weekend or the weekend before my, my wife and son were, were away for a couple of days. We have a holiday home down in the South of Ireland and, and I had to stay up cause I was working and, um, and I was, I was going to bed that night. The house was quiet and our dogs were also with them. And it was so quiet. And I actually took Joshua's urn and I put it up beside my, my nightstand. Um, and I went to sleep having a chat with him and, mm. and really just reconnected with that moment and just being able to say to him that, you know, thanks for, for, for what you did. Um, you know, and, and, and I think everybody is a teacher for us in life if we're willing to, to pay attention. And, what that 11 month old child showed me and taught me was more than anything else I will ever have learned up until that point and I suspect till the day I die. Justin, thank you so much for joining us, for sharing Joshua's story with us and for sharing your really inspiring story. I'm so glad that we got the chance to talk to you today. Appreciate it so much. Thanks for this resource. I think it's incredible. So thank you very much for what you guys do. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 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 Mm